Hey guys, thank you so much for stopping by Legend Church's weekly podcast. Just a quick reminder, you can check us out at legendchurch.com, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and Sunday mornings in Madisonville. But hey, without further ado, set the cruise control, start Matt Run, or grab a drink, and let's talk about all things Jesus. Let's, uh, this morning, I'm glad to see you guys. It is nice to hear your voices. It is nice to sing Christmas songs with you um, and to direct ourselves. I'm glad that you're here, and I hope that you're having a great week. I hope that you are ready. I know, like, if your kids are in CPS, there's only, like, another two weeks until the kids are out of school, which seems ridiculously early to me. Um, so, like, December is going to fly by. Like, December is just going to hit a million miles an hour. Um, and so we take time to prepare, right? We take an intentional time out of our lives to say, whoa, 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 whoa. This thing's so important. I want to prepare for it. Um, but today, today we are going to start our Advent journey in a strange place. We are not going to start our Advent journey with mangers or with angels. We are not going to start our Advent journey with miraculous conceptions or newborn babies. We're not going to start our um, Advent journey with music and with lights and with stars and all the things, not with shepherds, not with priests. Um, I want us to start today in the halls of Roman power. The, what you'll find as we investigate the Advent story, investigate the story of Jesus, is that it begins at one of the apexes of Western history. Um, stories and names that you know from, from like high school readings and from great plays and from history books are all centered here, and the Jesus story takes place at the very center of it. It's an, an odd thing. It's an odd thing that as we talk about the rise of Caesar from senator to emperor, we will talk about the birth of Jesus, and we will get very clear comparisons. And um, that's where I want to go this morning. I want to do this. Um, I don't, some of you don't know me very well or don't know this. Um, I was a history major in, in college, and I taught, um, I taught history in public school for years at North College Hill City Schools. Um, my primary push into the gospel and into Christendom is as a historic investigation. My question was, did this happen? Did these things that the Bible say, did they happen? And if they didn't, I have a disconnect. If Jesus was not born... And if Jesus was not crucified, and if Jesus was not resurrected, then I'm quitting all of this, and I'm going to go tailgate with my friends before NFL games, right? Primarily, the primary question of the gospel is a historical one. And I say that because this is one of my favorite sermons, and I like to do the historical investigation. I like to get into the history behind the scripture, and I think that the history behind the scripture protects us from fundamentalism. It protects us from becoming people who are iron and rigid in our interpretations of Scripture and our application and the temptation to make Scripture about us when, in fact, it's about something else. So um, we're going to explore some history today. Um, less, less theologizing. I'll let Justin preach. I'm going to teach this morning. So that's the goal of where we're going to go. So let me pray. Lord, uh, thank you for um, timelines. Thank you, Lord, for... Um, 
for the way you move in concrete history with flesh and blood people, that this isn't some mystery, this isn't some ghost, this isn't some like mystical thing that can get moved around, and, and that it is, it is rigid and it is concrete, and we must deal with it honestly. Help us in our historical uh, explorations. Help us, Lord, as we prepare our hearts uh, for the coming of the Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, we're going to start um, in the halls of Roman power. The goal of this Advent series is to have hope undergird everything we do, to let hope become a central point of what we do. And today, we're going to go in the opposite direction of that. This is my good friend, Herod Augustus, or Herod the Great. He's, we're, we're best friends. Herod is client king of Rome at the time Jesus is born. Um, he is rules, sorry, not king of Rome, king of Jerusalem. He, Rome has put him in power. He rules over Judea and Syria at the time that the Messiah is born. Um, you probably know him if you've grown up in Christian circles as Herod the baby killer. That's a, just a heck of a name, right? Um, Herod has a violent reputation in the church that is well-earned. And we'll get to that in a little bit. That is not the only way to know Herod. If you are an archaeologist or a historian, this is Herod the Builder. This is Herod the Great. No man, no man has left a larger impression on Judea, Syria, and what we call the Holy Land from an archaeological and a building perspective than Herod the Great did. He is wildly important. He is wildly Jewish. He is wildly Roman. And he sits... He sits on all of the fault lines in the Christmas story. Um, this is what we call Caesarea Maritima. Um, me and Kim and Justin, are there three people in here who went? I think. Me and Kim and Justin went here a couple years ago. Um, the bottom is what it looks like right now. The top is sort of a drawing of what it looked. This is just on the Mediterranean coast. There was nothing there besides a, like a rocky beach. And Herod said, no, I want a port there. And he built a port. He just said, I'm not worried about nature. I'm not worried about the cost. I'm not worried about the engineering. I am Roman. We can do anything. And he did. My favorite part of the story is if you look, do you see the little square that juts out into the ocean? That is a swimming pool. In an arid region, Herod built a swimming pool because he did not like to swim in the ocean because for everything else Herod was wrong about, he's dead right. Swimming in the ocean is terrible. <laughs> Hate the ocean, Right? Herod said, you know what I'd rather have? I'd rather have fresh water. And so Herod built an aqueduct that carried fresh water seven miles to dump into his swimming pool that he had surrounded by the ocean. So he sits in fresh water, clean, nice, while the waves crash around him. This is a man who can do anything he wants to do. When he sets his mind to building things, he does it, and he does it really well. Um, this, this site's one of the best sites you can go to if you're in, um, in ancient Israel. Um, this is Herod being anointed by Caesar. The story here is unbelievable, and I'm going to get lost in it, so just hold, help me track for a second. Herod's father had been part of the overthrow of the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans had, were the last independent Jewish state. They had overthrown the Greeks who had taken over in the wake of Alexander the Great. Herod's father had helped Caesar come to power in ancient, in ancient Rome, right? When Caesar rises from, from senator to emperor, if you've seen uh, Julius Caesar, the, the Shakespearean play, um, 
when Caesar rises, Herod's father takes his place. As a reward, Herod is made king over Galilee, and his brother is made king over Jerusalem. Right? That's, it's a patronage system. Later on, there's a civil war. Herod backs Brutus and Cassius when they attack and kill Caesar in the, in the assassination from the play, right? So now Herod has switched sides. And now because he switched sides and his brother has been killed, he gets all of Syria and Judea. Then Mark Antony, who's, Herod, who's Caesar's best friend, is really mad. He goes after Cassius and Brutus. Herod switches sides again, and now he's on Mark Antony's side. He gets more land because of that. And then Herod's, Herod, excuse me, Mark Antony's wife, Cleopatra, that, that Cleopatra, she is mad because Antony had given land to Herod that she thought was hers, so she picks the civil war. Antony takes land away from Herod. Herod then bats Antony's challengers in Cassius. They come, they assassinate Antony, and they accuse Herod, and then Herod sweets talks them into believing he was on their side. This is the fourth civil war, or the third civil war of Herod's lifetime, the sixth side he's been on. Right? By the end of it, Caesar has not survived. Cassius has not survived. Brutus has not survived. Octavian has not survived. Cleopatra has not survived. Antony has not survived. Herod has survived. This is a man who knew power. He knew the ins and the outs. He knew how to make powerful friends. He knew how to defeat powerful enemies. He played the game both militarily and politically very, very well. This is the Temple Mount. If you go there today, there's a retaining wall just under this brick wall on the outside that you can still go to. It's called the Wailing Wall. Herod the Great built that. Herod the Great came and said, the Jewish second temple is not enough for the, to honor the God Yahweh. And he builds it up. And Jewish rabbis say it is the most beautiful thing you will ever lay your eyes upon. You have not beheld beauty until you've seen the Temple of Herod. That's how second temple rabbis record it. Herod, his father, his grandfather, excuse me, was forcibly conversed to Judaism by the Hasmoneans about 100 years before this. By forcibly conversed, they made adult men, they forced them into circumcision there in the Negev desert. That's a significant barrier to entry. Um, so Herod has always resented, Herod has always resented Orthodox Judaism because they're an outsider, because he's an outsider. He's not Jewish enough for Jewish people. He marries a non-Jew. But he comes to power because the Romans like the fact that he's not ethnically Jewish enough, if that makes sense. Right? There's games being played here. Uh, somebody's asked us to do a sermon on race in the scriptures and racial tension in America. The fascinating thing is there is no such thing as race in the scriptures. There's ethnicities driven by culture. So nobody cared what Herod's skin color was. They cared what Herod's cultural background was. And Herod, if you look at this temple, is very much trying to walk a line between Greek and Roman on one side and Jewish on the other. And he makes this beautiful temple that today, today is one of the most tense sites in the entire world that you can visit. World War III could pop off at this spot at any time. And it's a legacy of Herod the Great and Herod trying to split loyalties between Jewish people and Greek people. Um, but you can see, the, the, the fascinating thing about this temple is this is the temple, and then around the outside of it, if you see these colonnades, Herod surrounds it with a Roman fortress. So Herod was effectively saying, here, Jewish people, have your temple, do your sacrifices, understand, Rome surrounds you, you are powerless, right? Herod is he's talking as loudly as he can talk in the ancient world about things. This is Herod the general 
when Herod went to Rome to become emperor, to become king of Judea, the Pharisees sent a tribe of, uh, uh, excuse me, a delegation of Pharisees to say, no, 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 we don't like him. Remember the story where Jesus tells a story about a king who went away to be appointed and then his enemies went after him? That's Jesus telling the story of Herod the Great. Herod goes and the, the, Romans, the, Roman, um, the Roman Senate says, well, let's see if you can win. So he comes back and he fights two great battles. He fights a great battle at Bethlehem, which is where he builds his great forests, the Herodian. And then he fights a battle at Jerusalem and he wins them both. Fascinating thing is, he defeats the Persians on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. If you've been reading along in our Bibles, you know that the Persians have been the enemies of the Jewish people for a long time. The last exile was at the hands of the Persians. And so Herod has come along and said, I am of the line of David. I fought a great battle at Bethlehem. And the great enemy to the east has been thrown out. I, God has picked me. And the Romans are like, yeah, sure, we'll pick you. Uh, Herod's doing that on purpose, right? Herod is a great general. And here is Herod. Do you probably know him? This is Herod on the throne welcoming in wise men from the east. You've heard the story. If you have a nativity set at your house, you have wise men in them. The wise men from the east is one of the more telling stories out of Matthew's version of the scriptures. What does it mean that people from the east who Herod has just subjugated come and ask for a king of the Jews? Right? Herod, who knows that his throne could go away at any moment, is being asked what happened to the king of the Jews. And Herod said, you dummies, what else do I have to do to show you that I'm king of the Jews? This is Herod welcoming emissaries from all over the world, which again is an act of King David. And we come in to Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So it's, you notice how it specifies, after. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Magi were not there the night of. They take years to get there. And there's a ton of exploration about what we could do with that story. But um, during the time of King Herod, Magi, if you're a good Jewish reader, what are Magi? They're magicians, they are sorcerers, they are evil. These are the people who conjure spirits. They are as roundly condemned as they can be in Jewish culture. Why is it that they know to come look for the Messiah, but Herod does not? They came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. What would it take to disturb Herod the Great? This is a man who outfought, outclawed, outconnived, outschemed, outwormed, and outtricked his way from half Jew outsider living in the desert to king of Jerusalem, like loyal subject and, and like arm and extension and the, the, the sword of Rome. This man is now one of the most powerful people in the region. He has the backing of the most powerful empire the world has ever seen, and suddenly he's deeply troubled. Why is it that this man who has never been defeated is deeply troubled? Now, my normal turn here is to talk about the choice of the kingdoms that Advent offers us. Matthew wants us to think about two things. Matthew wants us to compare the kingdom of Haran or the kingdom of Rome. He thinks they're the same thing. Matthew thinks the kings in Jerusalem and the kings of the Rome are the same people. Versus the kingdom of Jesus. Matthew very much, Matthew more than any other gospel asks you to make that comparison. 
Which kingdom will you choose? Matthew uses the kingdom of God phrase more than any other writer in the New Testament. The kingdom of the kingdoms of choice are between you. Which side will you choose? Matthew's probably writing to a fairly affluent church at the time. Which one? Which side will you choose? But before we can get to Herod the king, before we can get to the Herod the king, what I hope that we can be confronted by, because I want this to become our normal practice today, in our, today, before we get to Herod the king, can we process Herod the man? Herod's a person. Herod's a person who had a mother and a father. He had brothers and sisters. He had wives. He had children, right? Herod is a person, a human being that bears the image of God. What drove him to act as he did? The world that Herod lived in had broken him. Broken him, as it does everybody. Herod, in that sense, becomes the character that we can all relate to. Herod has this deep Jewish background and this deep Roman background, and he has to make them work together. Somehow he has to choose between the world of Rome, the world of control, the world of power, the world where he is undefeatable, the world where the largest empire, the the largest army in the world can be at his doorstep in a month to back him against any enemy. He has to balance that versus the hope of Isaiah of Hezekiah, of of, um, Ezekiel, of Jeremiah, right? He has to balance out what the prophets say versus what Rome says. And what Herod's tradition says, going back to the problem of Abraham, is that the people of God will be a great light and the world can be redeemed. All of the brokenness that Herod had experienced can be redeemed, but it will have to come about through the ways of Yahweh. It cannot come about through the ways of Rome. Herod is the last great war that institutes the great Pax Romana, the great peace of Rome, 300 years of worldwide peace. And it's such a lie to talk about the Pax Romana because all it meant was that anybody else had just been killed. The way that Roman peace came was at the edge of a sword. And there are plenty of people in the world today who have experienced the same thing at the hands of many other empires, our own not least. It is not peace on Yahweh's terms if we are just here to kill those who disagree with us. Herod has to process the way that Yahweh says, no, 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 serve, love, Be whole. Welcome the least of these. Build these social programs. Make sure that people don't go hungry. Do this work. That's how peace will come through the kingdom of God. And Herod has to choose between the unlikely path of Yahweh and the victorious path of Rome. And he can't see it. Herod had had grown up in a world of power, of might, of intrigue, of plot, in a world of survival of all cost, Herod had learned that Caesar, Cassius, Brutus, Octavian, Antony, and Cleopatra were not strong enough to survive this world, and he was terrified that he himself was not strong enough. Herod the man is just like everybody else of his time. He is not different in that sense. He's a perfect product of his time and his place, and I am afraid 
brothers and sisters, that we are perfect times of our time, perfect products of our time and our place, that we are subject to the same anxieties, the same whims, the same need for control, the same fear that it's all falling apart, the same thing that the evil forces are winning. And if we just fight harder, if we just fight dirtier, if we just fight for our own, then we can win. Then God can finally do his good work where the kingdom of God and the prophets have always said, no, stop. Let Yahweh do his work. Stand and be still is what Moses says to the people stuck between the the evading Egyptian army and the Red Sea. Stand and be still and see what God can do and Herod cannot build that or hear that message. Herod comes from a tradition entirely framed and built upon hope, not actualization, framed and built on hope that maybe today the things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Maybe today things aren't right, but they will be because I believe that Yahweh is faithful to his faithful. I believe that Yahweh is faithful to his creation. And if things don't go the way I want them to today, then they will go the way that I want them to for my children. And I will continue to be faithful in that message, which is why the faithful person we find in the nativity story is always Mary, because Mary understands the story and has hope that Herod cannot have. The contrast here is between Mary who says, let it be so. And Herod says, no, absolutely not. We'll do this my way. Herod has no hope. And so he misses the apex of human history. Imagine if Herod had just said to the, to the Magi, oh, this is the thing we've always wanted. This is the time the Jewish people have been hoping for. Let's make this come to be. How different Herod could have been remembered. How different Herod could have been if he'd have just had hope to believe that God's ways were better than his ways. But the world was hard and the world was violent and so he did not have that hope. He was not prepared for the arrival of the Messiah. He was too defensive of his own kingdom. Brothers and sisters, what is it today that drowns out our hope that obscures our vision, and that makes us not ready when the Messiah arrives in an unexpected way. If Jesus himself walked through the door, would we recognize him? The scriptures suggest we would not. The scriptures are full of warnings that we'll miss this. What is it that obscures your hope today? We've spent thousands of years villainizing Herod when it turns out that Herod's just one of us. He's just one of us with an army, right? Would I, be, would I be any better if I had the might of Rome behind me? I promise you, no, right? My impulse would be for control and for violence. And I would say, like, I'm, so I'm rereading every year in December, I reread The Lord of the Rings. And there's the scene where Frodo tries to give Gandalf the ring. And Gandalf says, you cannot give me this because I would want to do good with it. And it would make me an evil king. I cannot take this, Frodo. I cannot take that path towards peace and Pax Romana. So Gandalf takes the hard road. I'm not sure that I would do that. What is it that has gotten in the way where we have no hope? And so think about the themes of Advent. Think about the themes of Advent, these four, four like big temple ideas. Where are the places that because we don't have any hope, we have ceased to love. 
Where have we stopped loving? Where have we embraced the cheap secular version of diversity and acceptance and tolerance where we have been called to love? You have not been called to tolerate anyone. You've been called to deeply love every person you meet because they bear the image of God. Ugh, tolerance is easy. Tolerance is so easy because I can look at you, smile and nod, and walk away and talk about you behind your back. Love demands everything of us. Herod could tolerate his Jewish traditions. Herod could not love the way that Yahweh demanded that Herod love. What gets between you, um, between you and your love for your neighbor, the way that Jesus loved his neighbor, what has gotten in the way so that we, so that we don't do that anymore? Where has our lack of hope gotten in the way? Where are the places, friends, where we have, this one is gonna hurt, where are the places where we have no joy because we have no hope? where everything becomes a drudgery. Everything is a task. Everything is a thing that we have to do. And we do it because we're faithful adults. We're smart. We know what to do. Are we joyful people because we have hope that no matter how bad things are now, those things will get fixed later? Do we have hope that the way things are now is not the way they always be, so we have joy in the thing that will come to be, we think someday, maybe? What is the thing that you do that has joy that has joy? Do you feel lack of joy creeping in the world as a joyless place right now? Christmas traditions, I believe, and I will force my family to do every Christmas tradition because they're just pointlessly joyful. I will watch Charlie Brown every year. Every year. You know what else we'll watch? We'll watch Garfield, and then we'll watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and then we're going to watch Frosty the Snowman, and they have nothing to do with the coming of the Messiah, and we'll watch them because they're joyful. Be free of the need to separate the consumer Christmas from this religious Christmas. Take it all. Take all the food, take all the presents, take all the candy, take all the joy, take it all for what it's offered. There is goodness all over the world that is just a taste. It's just a beginning. It's just the advent of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, where has our lack of hope led us to a lack of joy? It is killing us. People of the Messiah, people who have hope, know um, it's not always going to be like this. We can be the vision of the way it's supposed to be. And the final, the final place, the one we'll think about next week, where are the places where peace has fled? Where has of our lack of hope led to peace being driven from our presence, where there is no peace? Where has a lack of hope led to an, where you have no internal peace, there's no, there's no assurance, there's no, there's no like, rootedness that God loves me and I know that everything's going to be fine in that context? Where has that lack of internal peace led to conflict? Everyone around us, the world swims in conflict. And this, another one's a hard one for me. I like the fight. I like to argue. I like to process. I like to assert myself. And everywhere I go, I notice a lack of peace in my wake because I have to be right all the time. I have to assert my will all the time. When I don't have faith, when I don't have hope that God is going to do things around me, then I have to do them. And I will never have peace, both for me or around me. Peace, love, hope, and joy are the four, the four values of Advent. 
But for us to do that, for us to do the other things, we will have to start with a deeply Jewish hope. A hope born of the concrete actions of a living God on behalf of his people. To believe that, we have to be, we have to be people who know, people who meditate, people who practice believing in and relying upon that God, the God Yahweh, the God who is historic and specific, who did certain things because he's a certain kind of God. That will drive our hope when we know that God. Believing and relying upon his way of doing things is the opposite of what Herod did, who in his weakness, his frailty, his rigidity, could only do things his own way. And because he could only do things his own way, thousands of people will die. It will be Herod's grandson in the book of Acts who falls over dead, executed, the last great king of Israel before Israel's burned to the ground by the Romans. Herod's legacy is that his control, his scheming, his conniving, his power destroyed him, destroyed his family, and ultimately destroyed the city. Because that's where that path leads every time. I'm going to invite the band to come back down. Every week we practice hope by taking communion. Every week we say, Lord, I've tried everything. I read every stupid self-help book. I did every meditation. I did all the yoga. I did the, said the essential oils. I did all the things, right? And it's not working. I'm still a mess. But I come to the table, and the body and the blood of Jesus says there's a way. There's a way through this mess. It's here. As you come, as you come, ask the Lord of hosts for hope. Ask the Lord of hosts to come and be Messiah and to give you all the peace and the love and the joy that comes with that. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for um, your work on the cross. Thank you for your love, humanity. Thank you for the actions that you have taken. Help us, Lord, to live in your story, to be people of Advent, to be people of hope. Lord, we know you have come. Lord, we know you are arriving in our midst. Lord, we know that you'll come again. Come, Lord Jesus, deliver us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.